Welcome to this week's Market Commentator podcast, MoneyWeb series of interviews with investment professionals. Our guest this week is Paul Bosman, who is fund manager at PSG Asset Management. He is a co-fund manager on the PSG Balanced Fund, PSG Stable Fund, and the PSG Diversified Income Fund. Paul, it's good to have you with us. Now, we've seen a lot of volatility in markets, certainly over the past week. How has Brexit changed or has it changed some of the assumptions uh, in PSG's investment outlook and approach. Yes, hi Hannah, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, BRICS is obviously very current at the moment. In terms of our views, we, I mean, firstly, if we look at our existing portfolios and the impact on our existing portfolios, you know, we believe we build portfolios which a person could call anti-fragile, which means that in opportunities like these, we're actually in a better position rather than a worse position. And typically that's because we tend to run with larger amounts of cash. So, when opportunities arise, we like, you know, we like to employ our cash into the markets. That is what we've been doing. Generally, we've been buying more of what we own already. So, for example, South African banks took a big knock. Some of the South African industrials offered a brief opportunity. In the UK itself, you know, not that much opportunity for us. Yes, we do own Sainsbury, and we did buy more of that. But the UK banks. We, you know, we're very, very cautious and wary there. We've got very specific criteria we look for in a company. Um, you know, we look for a quality business and with a quality management team with a good track record. And also, we want to know that the banks are very, very well capitalised. And we're not, you know, we're not convinced that all the banks which we're interested in there are that well capitalised. Mm. The other area where there was big pain was in UK property, so the listed property. You know, we had a good, long, hard look at that as well. And also there, we think the share prices have moved, but we still think that the you know the asset values of the properties are potentially highly overstated, and we think that the the vacancies in properties in the UK you know could go quite a bit higher. And in that case, when that gets built into the valuation assumptions, your valuations actually come down, and in very often cases, the share price then comes down quite a bit more as mm. we saw in the financial crisis. So. You know, um, we find opportunities, but probably not to the extent in the UK specific as one would have thought. A lot of the other UK stocks are not the banks and not the property actually recovered quite quickly. So, you know, there were brief opportunities here and then, as I mentioned, Sainsbury for us was a nice opportunity. Um, but for the rest, you know, I think you know, the big fallout now is really the accommodative monetary policy, which is flowing from this. And, and a big bond rally globally. You know, we have built a position in bonds over the last sort of eight months and quite a, a reasonable duration in our portfolios, you know, which would benefit from this. And this comes back to our anti-fragile point of view is in environments like this where, you know, where markets panic, very often the money runs towards the safety of bonds, um, which is the case. So you've got that offsetting factor, which helps. We'll touch on bonds uh, in a little bit. I'd like to pick up on banks, South African banks particularly, and we have seen their share prices come under pressure, uh, driven lower by a number of factors, but one of those being the fact that they are exposed to the South African economy, which investors don't have a very positive outlook on. Some investors would argue that banks are cheap for a reason and uh, should perhaps be approached with some caution because of the fact that we're in an inflationary and rising interest rate environment here in South Africa. PSG thinks uh, that banks offer value. Why do you like banking stocks uh, in SA? Yeah, well, I think you've almost answered the question. Is what very often happens is um, when there's pessimism in a you know broad-based pessimism towards an industry or a geographical area, 
that's very often where we find opportunities because the market tends to ignore the inherent quality and value in those cases and just looks at, at the macro concerns. So our banks are, especially a business like First Rand, is if we just look at it from a business point of view, um, you've got a, a chairman that owns 100 million shares, a CEO that owns 8 million shares, um, a business with a phenomenal track record of creating value for shareholders, a bank that is significantly overcapitalized, so your dividend should be safe at least, but it will probably grow quite attractively. Um, you know, and you've got a, a bank that's got a good track record of servicing clients and being innovative and providing conservatively. And we don't think there's anything on the horizon to change that. Um, hmm. And what very often happens is this tremendous fear around inflation and the interest rates are going to jump up. And, you know, if you look at inflation, it was a, towards um, in the last year and the beginning of this year, when soft commodity prices shot up and the RAND weakened um, and there was emerging market sell-off, there was obvious inflation concerns, and rightly so. But, you know, you're looking one year forwards then. You're not looking two and three year forwards. In fact, when you've got a spike in inflation, it actually moves into the base of the index, which means that it's very unlikely that you're going to have such high inflation you know, when it rolls over in 12 months. In fact, you'll probably have lower inflation. So, and when you're buying, when you're buying these equities, we're taking a very long-term view. So when there's this short-term pessimism baked into share prices, that's when we, if we can buy a business like First Round on a 5% dividend yield and NetBank on a 6% dividend yield, and we believe those dividend yields will, will grow by at least inflation, we think that's a very good investment. How would a credit ratings downgrade uh, of South Africa's uh, sovereign debt impact that assumption and those outlooks, particularly for banking stocks? You know, in that case, I think what's important to highlight is that our banks are largely, well, very largely, um, funded by South Africans, which means they're domestically funded. So they aren't reliant on outside investors to be able to fund themselves, i.e., you know, roll their funding. So if you're issuing paper to the markets that you need to, you know, roll the paper um, and the investors say we're not interested anymore. Because, and South Africans... You know, if you're managing a, a pension fund or, you know, a Reg 28 money, and most unit trusts have to be 75% invested domestically, you, you're a forced buyer um, of South African banks. Mm. Um, so if, you, if you're investing in fixed interest instruments and you're not going to be buying bank paper, good luck to you. There isn't much out there. You know, it's a very liquid market. It's, it's government bonds and bank paper. And then the corporate paper market isn't very deep. So the ability for the banks to fund themselves wouldn't be a big concern to us. So I'd say that's the first thing. For a, you know, a run on the banks, I suppose, is is always a risk. Um, but I think you know, I think it's unlikely that, especially when it's been this well telegraphed and everybody's very concerned for a long time and sort of gets baked into expectations. And I don't think the man on the streets, to be honest, is going to have you know run to the ATM if we have a downgrade. So your cost of funding will tick up a bit, you know, because. Your, the rating of a bank will always tends to well it generally moves in line with the rating of the sovereign, which means that if your rating gets downgraded sovereign level, your rating at bank level gets downgraded, which means that your cost of funding has to increase a bit. Mm. But the banks have got a very strong oligopoly in South Africa, and they tend to be quite good at passing funding expenses, you know, pressure through to the consumer. So at the end of the day, the consumer will, you know, will feel the effect of it. And that's the sad part of it. Yeah. Other than banks, um, which clearly do seem to present some opportunities, where else is PSG seeing opportunities 
in the local equity market, considering that a lot of South Africans do need uh, that 75% exposure or can't go beyond 25% exposure on offshore equities, where are the local opportunities? That's a difficult question because that's exactly what we're grappling with at the moment. So, you know, on the domestic market, when the, with, the, with the big concerns in, in the resources sector, that created a nice opportunity for us, but we've largely um, you know, sold out of those positions because we don't see the margin of safety there anymore. Um, and unfortunately, we had the, the panic around sort of South African bank and financial services, which has created an opportunity for us. For the rest, it's very much you know a mixed bag. I wouldn't say there's any specific theme in terms of sectors. Um, we where we find quality companies that that aren't overvalued. Um, you know, we would be biased, but many of these quality companies are expensive at the moment. So. If I just look at some of our larger holdings, domestic holdings, um, you know, over and above the banks and, and financial services, um, would be the likes of Imperial, which is a cyclical company where the market's also very, very worried about interest rates and motor sales. And fair enough, you know, auto sales will have headwinds, but once again, we're buying these businesses on a very long-term view. So taking mm-hmm. a, a short-term view into the share price creates opportunity for us. Supergroup is one of our larger holdings. Um, a large portion of that profit is actually generated offshore Australia and and Europe and UK. Good management team, logistics is, you know, we think logistics, their logistics business is a good business. And you're not, you're not paying a lot at 13p, we think it's, you know, it still offers good value. A stock like Roynet, um, not growing very fast, but at the, at the moment, you know, very, very strong balance sheet because they've got surplus cash and a dividend yield of, of 6.5%. They don't have to do a hell of a lot for that share to be cheap. And we think the new management team is, is um, we like the way, the measured pace at which they're looking to deploy the, the surplus cash. But yeah, and then for the rest, you know, it's the companies that we've been long-term investors in, the likes of EOH and AVI, but they're not cheap enough to justify huge positions. So we do hold them, but they're not huge positions. Um, and then in the construction you know the construction we we do have exposure it's not massive exposure but we own the likes of group 5 and wbho but once again the market we think is is overly conservative in the valuation of those stocks they're not always companies that have are the easiest to to predict future cash flows um so you've got to be very conservative when you're valuing them but despite that we think you know the prices are probably at the low end yeah and then otherwise i suppose i'll, I'll other big holdings are are mostly all offshore. So if I were to take our balance fund at the moment and I was just to pull it apart a bit and say we've got 65% in equities, of which 10% is in banks, of which 25% is offshore, that leaves 30% of the fund invested in domestic equities, which is an indication of you know a lack of opportunity here. Tell us about your offshore um, holdings then, a lack of opportunity domestically. Where do you see the opportunities offshore? Yeah, so offshore is fantastic for us. Uh, you know, it's, it's, that opportunity is, is always wide. Um, we look for companies that have got a sustainable competitive advantage and companies that have got a, a management team with a proven track record, and then we don't want to overpay for those businesses. And we are seeing value... Um, once again in financials, um, especially in the U.S., insurance as well as um, banking. And then U.S. industrials, um, you know, U.S. stocks that have got or companies that have got direct or indirect exposure to, you know, the whole shale recession. 
offers value because it is such a large part um, of the U.S. industrial economy that almost all industrial companies have some kind of exposure to the industry. And with that industry now you know, growing at a very rapid negative rate, it means that those profits are being hammered and the share prices, therefore, being we think being priced in many cases over pessimistically because you know at some stage the profits bottom and it's not growing again and when you find companies that have got a management team with a track record of of over the long term allocating capital wisely um, and growing profits for shareholders and in some cases are big investors in the businesses themselves those are the opportunities we look for so for example a company called Colfax is in our, in our top 10 holdings um, US industrial company founders have got a big a big, um, the Rail Brothers have, have got a big stake in the business. They've got a very good track record of, within the U.S. industrial space, um, but they've got you know, exposure to, not directly to the price of the gas um, or the price of oil, but they've got indirect exposure to, to the industry, um, which is putting price, pressure on the price. Then, for example, Union Pacific, which is one of the U.S.'s um, biggest railroad businesses. They're also under pressure because there's a switch from from coal to gas in the power stations because gas is so cheap, with the result that the coal volumes are falling at double digits um, and they're a big carrier of coal. And again, the market's overreacting in terms of the share price. You know, you can build very pessimistic coal future um, loads into the profits and still the share is, even then the share looks cheap to us. So, you know, it's, I suppose at the moment, if I had to say our biggest exposure on the, on the global basis is U.S. We've got some U.S. tech, but probably more what you would call old tech, the likes of Cisco and Microsoft, um, which are attractively priced. And then a bit of exposure in Europe and the U.K., but, you know, we, we would go wherever we see the value at that stage. Rand volatility has, of course, been another uh, theme dominating markets, certainly this year and towards the end of last year. Other than the clear impetus that that gives to investing offshore, because obviously when those uh, returns are translated into rands, they immediately look a lot uh, healthier. How else is rand volatility impacting on your approach to, to investing? So RAND volatility is important in the sense that um, is very important for the fundamentals of many companies in South Africa. So firstly, from a portfolio manager point of view, we do out of principle hedge, I suppose, against the RAND because we invest on a global basis. But it's not specifically a RAND hedge call. It's more that we're investing because the opportunity set is so wide on a global basis and also it just from a fiduciary point of view, we believe it is important to diversify our clients' investments you know, outside of South Africa. So when the RAND weakens, that does benefit those positions. And as I mentioned, for example, our balanced fund is the same with our flexible fund and our equity fund is 25% invested offshore. So there's one benefit there. But then you know, on the domestic horizon in terms of where opportunities are, some companies really don't like a, a weaker RAND and others and others do because if you're a manufacturer in South Africa and the RAND weakens you more competitive on an international basis which makes your business more compelling and also if you're an exporter your translation benefits you know you get immediate benefit in terms of translation other businesses like Imperial which is a big importer of cars need to compete against companies like Toyota and Mercedes who assemble locally so then you've got a disadvantage and then the question is, are you able to push the you know, the higher procurement costs through to the consumer? 
But then you've once again got to go and look at that and say, okay, but what's being backed into the share price? So typically when the RAND would weaken, um, you can have tremendous sell-offs into the companies that face headwinds from a weaker RAND, but often the share price is just overcooked because the RAND either you know has to weaken a lot more than has, it has weakened to justify the share price. So for us, it's, it's moving, you know, it's, it's all moving parts, and we've always got to reconcile it to the margin of safety is what we're paying and what we're getting a compelling investment. Let's move uh, to bond markets and move away from equity for a little bit. You mentioned that there has been a big bond rally globally. We have definitely seen increased appetite for bonds, I suppose, driven by the volatility we're seeing in equity markets, expected lower returns as well. Which bonds <laughs> does PSG favor? Because, of course, not all bonds are made equal, and some analysts may even argue that South African government bonds are more akin to equities because of some of the risk uh, that is priced into them and that really South Africans should be looking for offshore uh, bond exposure. How is PSG approaching that? We have a very simple approach to investing in bonds, and that is if you're making any investment, well, this is our approach to all asset loss decisions. If you're making an investment, um, you need to be sure that you're going to get a real return from that investment, but that re- real return needs to be commensurate with the risk you're taking. So on South African government bonds, sure, they're risky, but at the right price, you know, you've, you've, you've got to look at them. And we've always said if we can get a, a return of inflation plus about 3% on a 10-year government bond in South Africa, you've got to look at bonds in principle. So that's what we were doing, and therefore for a very long time we didn't own bonds. I mean, for a very long time, inflation plus three just seemed like, you know, seemed like you might never get there again. Mm. And then, sure enough, in the latter half, and especially in the last month of last year, we had a nice panic in South Africa um, around the the NENA issues, and there was a a big sell-off in our bond market. That was a good opportunity for us. Um, So which bonds do we own? We started at the five-year bond, um, that's where we started nibbling towards the end of last year, and then we started adding 10-year. And as we look at the yield curve and a few other factors, which I'll get into in, in, in a minute, we've actually been pushing out the duration, and our, our largest exposures now are in the 20-year bonds. So we've got about 10% of our balance fund at this stage in, in bonds. But what's important, I suppose, is the duration is, is actually quite long because the majority of that is in, in a 20-year bond. So, you know, why do we go for the longer, longer dated bonds? Well, there are a few reasons. The first one is just that you'll pick up on inflation plus, you know, if you're buying a 10-year, a five-year bond, you may be getting inflation plus about um, two, and on the 20-year, you're getting inflation plus about 3.3, and we think that pickup is more than adequate for the additional risk we're adding. Hmm. But yes. a longer-term bond, there are a few sides to that. The first one being that if, if you have a target duration, for example, and you want to achieve that by buying five-year bonds and you put 100 rand in the five-year bond, you can achieve the same duration by putting, for example, 50 rand in the 20-year bond, which means that your net exposure to the government, sure, you're taking a longer-term view, but your net exposure to the, to the government, South African government, is actually half. So the two sides, the one is duration is risky, sure, but the other side is to say, well, our total exposure, we can, we can minimize our total exposure to South African government by having longer-term bonds. 
But by that, I'm not implying that we don't think that the African government's going to pay our money back. We very relaxed that they will pay the money back. Um, but it's just in terms of managing total credit exposure across the portfolio, that's an important consideration to us. And then the second aspect, which is quite important, is that we also believe that bonds adds a kind of a hedge to disinflation and deflation on a global basis. So if you have deflation, for example, in the developed world, that will most probably be very bad for for equities on a global basis. And there's very little hedging you can do if you aren't using derivatives against that kind of scenario. And therefore, we believe that South African 20-year government bonds offering, let's say, inflation plus 3.3, inflation plus 3.5, would be a very attractive investment in that scenario. Because rates, I mean, if you've seen, you've seen negative rates in many of the developed for you know, negative government bond rates, the UK has also gone negative now. Um, and in a scenario like that, a positive yielding, strongly positive yielding government bond um, will probably be an attractive investment. And the yields on our bonds will probably contract quite a bit, i.e. capital gains for, for current holders of those government bonds. The 20-year bond, because it's got longer duration, tends to move a lot more than for every round invested. You can get a lot more protection, if you like. It's got more optionality because it's longer duration. So you get much bigger swings, um, and therefore, if you want to use it as protection uh, against a scenario like that, a 20-year bond offers more bang for buck, which is what we like. So there are two sides to it, the one being um, that we just think it's an attractive real-deal investment at this stage, the second being that it does offer a hedge against the environment, which would be very bad for all other investments in most unit trusts. To end then, and, and perhaps coming back to equities, um, what is PSG's outlook or what sorts of returns do you think investors can expect to get from equity markets this year? Yeah, so we, I mean, that's a very good example of a question we wouldn't answer. Um, <laughs> if you <laughs> look, look into your crystal ball, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but the answer which I would give you is if I look at the earnings yield on our, um, let me just quickly get it for you, our, our earnings yield on our domestic equities um, is at the moment is 9%. So that's the earnings yield. So that's the earnings divided by the price you're paying. We believe that we've invested in above-average companies. Companies will be able to grow their profits in the long term by at least inflation. So you could add to that 9% inflation plus a bit. You know, so let's add six and maybe another one or two. So let's say you're 15, 16%. So we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be. And then you could have, if we if we've managed to underpay, then you could still get some. Additional pickup by, um, for example, the rating of the stock improving. So maybe the PE goes from, let's call it, 11 to 13. You'll get even more than that. So we wouldn't be surprised if we do get quite attractive returns, so mid-teens to maybe even higher teens, on our domestic equity portfolio, but over the medium to long term. You know, over one year, who knows? Over five years, well, more likely. Over 10 years, which are very likely. Um, and the same is true for our offshore equities. We think they, they, we haven't overpaid. They're good companies. They'll grow their profits. But as always, in equities, it's, you've got to be patient. All right. We'll leave it there. Paul Bosman is a fund manager at PSG Asset Management.